We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Restoring the widow's son and just the background to that brings us to where we are today. Because look what it says in verse 1. It says, Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. And so the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. It came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Now it happened, as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. And so the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. And so, looking at this right here, it's a really cool story of God providing. Uh, God providing for the widow. And, you know, one of the things that you're going to see in the study today is that um, everything, everything is completely um, under the sovereignty of God, you know. And uh, even this microphone not working, you know, I'm not sure why, you know. But you know what? God has a very good reason why. You know, uh, made in China. Maybe that's why. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, and he's teaching us things. And the key, I think, to life is you have to always, always listen. You always have to see God's hand in everything. And I think a lot of times we see it in the big things, and, and it's pretty obvious, you know. God's trying to get your attention. That's why you're going through what you're going through, or, or someone else is attention or God's going to save somebody you know but you know the the little things as well but I think that our problem a lot of times is we're not paying attention we're not paying attention to the Lord you know here we have a, a situation where Elisha knew in advance that there was going to be seven years of famine he knew that in advance the Lord had shown him the Lord showed Elisha a lot of things a lot of things. And I think a lot of times when we think, well, that was just his gift, and, and it's true, and, and he was probably a very unique man of God in his calling, but I would venture to say that more of us could know the secret things of the Lord if we prayed more, if we were in the Word more, if we were listening more. God would show us more things that otherwise wouldn't be known if we were listening to the Lord. Elisha is like that. It's a really cool example of that and so he knew in advance there was going to be seven years of famine sometimes the Lord shows you things the Lord shows me things about this person or that situation or whatever and I and I sometimes I even tell my wife or I tell my kids watch this is going to happen and sure enough it happens and I'm not saying it happens all the time but you know it's something that we as Christians should probably be experiencing more than we have been and I think the key really is listening. Just listening to the Lord, knowing that He speaks to us personally, and just really being in prayer, being on your knees, being fasting, and, and being in the Word. And God will show you things that you need to know. And so, you know, Elisha knew seven years of famine were coming, and he thought about the widow. Now, if you remember back in chapter 4 of this book, um, Elisha had brought this uh, woman's son to life. Um, the Lord had used her and her husband and what had happened was they um, they were blessed, they blessed him with a place for him to be able to stay 
And then, uh, you know, Elisha said, well, what should I do for her? And Gehazi said, well, she doesn't have a child. And so, you know, he said, you're going to have a kid. And sure enough, she had a son. Then next thing you know, he got sick. He, he died. Elisha brought him back to life. This widow had a special place in his heart. And so what he did was he told her. He said, this is going to happen. And so, you know, he says there in verse 1, Arise, go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine. And, and furthermore, it's going to last in this land for seven years. And so she goes to the land of the Philistines. If you remember back in chapter 4, I think it's verse 14. She has a family. And so they do have that. They go together. But then after it's all, it's all done, after the seven years are over, uh, she returns. She returns to her land. But apparently when she returns, someone else is in her land. Someone else has her property. So she goes to the king, right? And as she goes there to the king, what we find is that the Lord um, has this whole thing set up. It's a perfect intersection that is just so amazing. The king is having a conversation with Gehazi. And remember, Gehazi is Elisha's servant. And right there and then, in that moment, in that minute, at that point of time, at that juncture of history, at that intersection, right there and then, for whatever reason, he asks Elisha to tell him about the miracles. He asks Gehazi to tell him about the miracles. And, and he tells him about this miracle, this miracle right here. And right when he's talking about it, right there and then, she walks in. And so, you know, the, the king, you know, she walks in and she, she says, can I have my land back? And so what do you think the king does? The king's like, wow. Wow, this is totally God. You know, the Lord, sure, you can have your land back. Not only that, he says there, you can have the, all the proceeds, he says in verse 6, of the field from the day that you left the land. Until now, it's all yours. All the money that that field would have produced all those years, it's all yours. Because I know, and who knows, if it weren't for this, you know, this coincidence, maybe he wouldn't have done this. This is not a, a godly king, really. But it was because it was totally the Lord, and he saw God's hand in it, that he gave her the land, and he gave her, you know, the proceeds. And what did God do? God would provide for her. And we're going to learn a couple of lessons right off the get-go. You know, and, and we got to know this as we go through life. You ever bump into somebody, you go to Target, and you happen to see somebody that you know, maybe you haven't talked to in a while or whatever. Maybe they've even been heavy on your heart, or who knows, maybe you don't like them. I don't know, you know. And it's like, what do you do? What do most of you do? You run. Like, I don't want to talk to them right now. I don't have my makeup on or whatever, you know. And I, I, always, I always, to be honest with you, whenever I see somebody, I think, you know what? There's no coincidences with God. And I, and I go talk to them. Well, how are you doing? You know, and who knows? Sometimes it's, it's obvious. It was a divine appointment. Other times it's not. But I do have that in my heart. I, sometimes I'll get a, a phone call. It'll be somebody asking for someone that's not, not here at the church, not at my house. And they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I got the wrong number. And I just say, no, you didn't. There's no coincidences with God. You called me because, you know, God wants me to tell you that Jesus Christ loves you. Do you go to church? Do you know the Lord? I mean, there are no, absolutely no coincidences in the kingdom of God. The Hebrews didn't have a word for coincidence because they knew that. And right here, while this conversation is happening, and, and she just, it says right there, you know, she just happened, you know, to come. I mean, that is completely the Lord. And I, and I think we really need to see that, you guys, in our life. How God is sovereign over everything. You know, the word coincidence is not found in the vernacular vocabulary of God. Um, you know, the dictionary defines coincidence as an occurrence of events or circumstances without apparent or causal connection. They just, you know, whatever. But we know that's not the case in God's kingdom. Everything has a cause. And everything has a connection. Because it's His kingdom. You know, even Albert Einstein said, Coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. 
But we need to know, even though there's no visible signature on the wall, it is God who's doing these things. You know, one person said, there's no such thing as coincidence. There are no accidents in life. Everything that happens is the result of a calculated move that God uses to lead us where we are. And so what we read in our text tonight about this conversation between the king and Gehazi, right when the widow comes in was God's perfect timing and was his way to ensure that the widow was provided for, huh? You know, and that's something we see so beautifully uh, through uh, the uh, counsel of Elisha, the seven years of famine, he was obedient to the words, and uh, what we find is that she went out and then she returned to claim her land. And you know, one thing I think it's cool to know, even in looking at this, for all of us here, is God definitely has a special place in his heart for orphans and widows. You know, we see that throughout the scriptures. For example, Psalm 68, verse 5, it says that he's a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. You know, we're going to go to Cambodia, and a large part of us going to Cambodia, to be honest with you, to go over there is because of one orphan. His name is Samuel. That one orphan. Now, there are some that we've talked to who don't believe that, you know, not, not no one from this church, but, but just people who are like, you know, like, is it all about one orphan? Of course we know there's more to it, but even if it were just this one orphan named Samuel, it's worth it. Because I know this, that God has a special place in his heart for orphans. God has a special place in his heart for, for widows. And we read that throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy 27, 19, it says, Cursed is the one who perverts the justice, do the stranger, the fatherless, and widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. You know, if you're here tonight and you're a widow, you have a special place in God's heart. And He has been the one to provide for you. And He will provide for you. Why? Because He's your husband. See, He's the father to the fatherless. He's the husband. He's our, our husband, our maker. I like Psalm 146, verse 9. It says, The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. It's so cool to know, I'm reading this right here, this whole story, how God provides for the widow. That's why we read in James 1.27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, we, I think we know the last part. You know, for most of us here, if we're talking about real religion, we're talking about Christianity, then, you know, be holy and don't do drugs and don't do sex before you get married and, you know, um, don't use foul language and don't watch rated R movies. And we kind of know those things and praise God for that. That's good. But, but pure and undefiled religion is visiting orphans and widows. It's, it's, it's more than just not doing things. It's, it's actually doing certain things. And, and so we got to know this is God's heart. It, it's important for us to know that. It's also important for us to all know here that God will provide for us. You guys know that? I mean, I don't want you guys to raise your hand, but I think that if I were to ask here tonight, how many of you are struggling financially? A lot of us would raise our hands. A lot of us would. A lot of us, maybe you're in debt. You have credit card debt, or you have whatever debt, or you know, you don't have credit or something, or you don't have a savings account. You're living paycheck to paycheck, and sometimes you're just like, man, I wish I didn't have to live paycheck to paycheck. But it is so cool to know that God will provide for you. God will provide for all your needs. Maybe not all your greeds, right? But, but all your needs. Philippians 4 verse 19 says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You know, he 
provides our needs, our food, our clothing, our beans and jeans and desserts and t-shirts and the basics for survival and everything else beyond the food and clothing is really above and beyond. Yeah, but I don't have the new car like they have or I don't own my house or, or whatever the, 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 the qualm is. Man, God has you right where He wants you. If God wanted you to, you know, inherit some inheritance, he, he would have given it to you. Or, you know, I don't know. Um, he, he has a way of just doing that. But I really want to encourage you to know that you are rich with riches that are, are much greater than that. And what ends up happening a lot of times when you get a lot of money is it takes you away from the Lord. It's a headache. And you start worrying about it. You can't sleep about it. It's so better when you don't have any money to worry about, man. You know, all I know is this, that God, if we see it right here, He provides for His children. He does. Now sometimes we mismanage our money, but God is still good. God is still good and He's teaching us all these things. He, he will provide for us. I like what Hudson Taylor said. He said, Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. He knows very well that His children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect he will send three million missionaries to China, but if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. Depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. You know, sometimes I look at this church and I just, I just trip out. I remember when we first started the church in Almani, people said, you're not going to make it. You know, and, and if it was just man, if man was providing for this church, we wouldn't have made it. We wouldn't have made it. But see, God is the one who's providing for us. And God's the one who's providing for you. One person said, The king goes farther than restoring everything that belonged to the woman. He also provides her with all the income from her land that she would have received had she stayed in the country. And so... We learn about God's provision. It's so cool. We learn about the fact that there are no coincidences with God. We have to really, really take these things to heart. And then look what we read in verse 7. It says, And Elisha went to Damascus, and, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Haziel, Take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him of everything good of Damascus for 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, Go. Say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Haziel said, why is my Lord weeping? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword. And you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So Hazael said, But what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. And then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died. And Hazael reigned in his place. It's kind of a trip that Elisha would go to Damascus, that he would go to Syria. And you know, when you look at his ministry, um, it's amazing the impact he had. The impact he had on the southern kingdom, the impact he had on the northern kingdom, the impact he had on the nation of Syria, and uh, even ministering there. If you guys remember, Naaman, the Syrian general, was healed of his leprosy through this ministry. 
And remember, we studied how the Syrian raiders were captured by Elisha. Even the Syrian army was supernaturally defeated by the Lord, something Elisha had prophesied when God scared them away. And so the Syrians, they knew about the Lord, primarily through the ministry of one man, Elisha, the prophet of the Lord, uh, this man of God. And so when Elisha goes to Syria, uh, the king, he's Ben-Hadad II, he falls ill, and so he finds out that the man of God is in town, and so he sends Haziel to find out whether or not he's going to live, whether he's going to recover from this whole thing, right? And uh, this guy Haziel, he's an interesting guy. We don't really know a whole lot about him. It doesn't say he's an officer or a commander. It doesn't even say he's a servant. He just kind of pops up, right? We're not told. Uh, an Assyrian uh, inscription uh, called the Berlin inscription refers to Haziel as the son of nobody. And so what that basically means is he wasn't of royal blood, royal lineage, right? Just some guy that kind of pops up. But he, he goes to meet with Elisha with this question. Think about this. He's got 40 camels. Man, that's a lot. Think about it. It'd be like, I don't know, almost like 40 trucks, man. And uh, they're, they're gifts to give to Elisha. The Bible doesn't say whether or not he took them or not. If I had to guess, I'd probably say he probably didn't. It doesn't seem like his style, right? But the king, he really wants to find out if he's going to make it, right? And, and you know, at first, when I read this whole thing, he asked him the question, shall I recover from the disease? There in verse 9, look again what Elisha said to him. Go say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Now when you read that verse right there, does it sound like he's like gonna tell he's telling him to lie? It kind of sounds that way when you first read it. And you know, sometimes you go to the hospital, you talk to the doctor, hey, don't say anything negative, you know, but he's probably gonna die, but just tell him he's gonna be okay, right? It kind of looks like he's doing that, but it's not really what's happening. Here's what's happening. He says he's going to recover from the illness, but God showed me he's going to die, and here's why. He says it later, because you're going to kill him. You're going to be the next king of Syria. You're going to kill him. See? And, and that's the answer that he gives to him. You know, the Lord showed Elisha so many things. And, and so, you know, he's just looking at this guy. I remember one time you know, talking to uh, my friend, and he was a pastor, and, and, and you know, and I don't know, I, I guess you got to be careful with stuff like this, but he told me about, he's all, you know this guy right here? He's not reading and he's not praying. He's not in communion with God. I can see it. That's not their life. Sometimes the Lord shows you things. They're not on their knees. They're not in the Word. They're not in prayer. He, right here, the Lord showed him something crazy. He showed him that, that Haziel would become such a vicious man, a vicious man, that he would rip open the women who were pregnant with children. He would take the children and he would throw them on the rocks. And he would dash them to pieces. And history does tell us that he becomes a, a vehement enemy of Israel for 40 years. Hazel, crazy. Elisha just, and I don't know, it's just, it's just like he's just staring at him and God's showing him all these things. And you know, to the point where Hazel is like, you know, gets embarrassed. And then he's like, why are you staring at me? You know, why are you staring at me? And he says right here, because I know the evil that you will do. I know the evil that you're going to do. And what does Hazael basically say? He says, oh, who am I? I'm a dog. I would never do that. What are you talking about? Oh, yes, you will. Best of men, men at best. What does the Bible say about our hearts in Jeremiah 17, 9? What does it say? They're, they're wicked. Our hearts are wicked. They're desperately evil. God knows it. You know, if you're here today and you're thinking, I would never do that, I would never do that, then you know what? You've got to be careful because the Bible says, take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. You might be the one. 
to do all that evil. I might be the one. It's in us. It's our sin nature. We're all susceptible. If it were not for the grace of God, there go I. Hazael, he was like, I would never do that. What do you think? I'm a dog. Man, you did it. You ended up doing it. You ended up doing such evil wickedness. Maybe you thought you, you never would. We always have to guard our hearts, you guys, you know. I mean, I could be on the computer and I'll be watching or whatever, just, you know, looking up different web pages. And then all of a sudden, and it's a guitar thing, you know, because I'm learning how to play the guitar. And, um, you know, I'm looking at this. And next thing you know, there's this, this little square picture of some girl. And she doesn't have a, a lot of clothing on. Right? And so my wife walks in at that moment. What are you doing? I, I didn't know it was there, honest, you know. And <laughs> but I have learned, man, to discern these things. And right away, boom, I just go to a different page. I don't need to see that. I don't need to see this page right here. I don't need that information. Even if it's over here on the side, I don't want it to be anywhere in my peripheral vision. Why is that? Because so many pastors are addicted to pornography. Why is that? Because a lot of pastors are on their computer left unattended, huh? A lot of these guys. Well, would I be one to say, I'll never do that? Now, I'll be honest with you. I, 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 and, you know, the, the human part of me says I would never do that. I fear God. I know He would kill me. I don't want to lose my wife and my kids and the family and the ministry. Like everything, a part of me says I abhor that. I detest that. I know how demonic pornography is. I know how destructive it is. I would never do that. But I know that everybody's susceptible. You know, if you're not growing closer to the Lord, then you're backslidden. We should be growing closer to the Lord. We should be, like I said earlier, in the Word, in prayer. we got to maintain, like, kind of like an aggressive cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Because if not, He's going to just, He's going to eat us alive. This guy Haziel right here, who knows? Maybe he was a believer in the Lord. Maybe that's why um, the king sent him to Elisha. I'm not sure. But when Elisha says, and he just sees the evil that this man would do, you know, he just says, wow. Wow, I can't believe it. I would never do that. Oh, yes, yes, you would. Remember, remember that was Peter's thing? Remember Peter said that? And I think, don't you guys think Peter meant it when he said it? Lord, I'll never deny you. All these other guys, yeah, I can see it. But not me, Lord. What did Peter do? He denied the Lord. See, we're all susceptible to these things. Haziel either lied and denied knowingly, maybe it was already part of his plan, or he didn't realize he had it in him. We have to know theology. And sometimes it's really helpful to know that I have a sin nature. That when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, um, they, have, they call it total depravity. That every square inch of my soul is fallen. We've got to know that. And that's why you know it protects us from saying, I would never do that. C.H. Spurgeon said, Our ignorance of the depravity of our own hearts is a startling fact. If I say I would never do that, no me, I could never do that. Like I've told you guys a million times, it's like moving up to the front of the line. What, what should have Hazael done after hearing these words? He should have taken it as a warning, huh? You mean to tell me that this is, this is like in, in, in the future for me? Oh Lord, have mercy on me. Oh God, help me. Right? That's what he should have done. David Guzik said he should have taken this warning as an opportunity to confront himself and do what was right instead of turning that accusation back upon Elisha. Sure enough, however, when Haziel died, when Haziel returned, the king you know, did recover from his disease, but he died at the hands of Haziel. And who knows how he did it? He just did this cloth and... You can, I don't know, it's an ugly picture, but he gets it, maybe it's wet with some type of poison or something, I don't know. 
and he just puts it over the king's face and he kills him. Just like that, right? And it's just crazy. Hazael proved to be a wicked menace to Israel. But here's another thing and another lesson for us. Because you're like, well, wait a minute, time out. I thought these were God's people. Why would Hazael be able to do so much damage to them? Like taking the pregnant women and ripping them open and taking their children and dashing them to pieces on the rocks. And when you read, for example, 2 Kings 10.32, let's turn there. 2 Kings uh, chapter 10 and verse 32, it says, In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, and Hazael conquered them in all the territory of Israel. If you go over to chapter 13, look at verse 3, Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad the son of Hazael, all their days. Look at verse 7. It says, For he left off the army of Jehoahaz, only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at the threshing. I mean, here was a great nation reduced to 10 chariots. You know, I mean, God just totally allowed Haziel to do all this damage to Israel, but why? You guys know the answer, huh? Why? Because Israel sinned. Israel just kept living in their sin. And so God used Haziel, God allowed Haziel to discipline him, to discipline their life. We read in Hosea chapter 13, verse 16, an awful verse. It says, Samaria is held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child ripped open. And I just want to, you know, nothing you know, spectacular or you know, weird, but just the fact that if we live in unrepentant, persistent, consistent sin. And if you're a child of God, you know, He's going to discipline you. He's going to spank you. Now when we first discipline our children, what do we do? We talk to them, right? Mijo, get right, right? Well, no, we don't hit them yet. We don't hit them yet. First we talk to them. Hey, straighten out. We try to give them a warning. We tell them why, you know? And then first it's a verbal discipline. Right? Then if that doesn't work, then what do you do? You take away their iPhone, right? Their iPod, right? <laughs> you start removing rewards from them. They might not feel it. As Christians, sometimes you might not feel it, but I think when you're in tune with the Lord, you'll start noticing things. And then if that doesn't happen, it just, they just continue to pro progress or digress. And the next thing you know, it really hurts. I don't know if you've ever had to spank your children, but you've got you to gotta, you gotta make it to where it hurts sometimes. It's the only way they're going to learn their lesson. And for us, you know, when we, when we live in sin, and that's why I want to encourage you, hate sin. Hate sin. Hate sin. Anything that would, you know, that you, that you, that you shouldn't be doing, that you're doing, don't play games with that. Don't go near the edge. Let me see how close I can get to, you know, one beer. What's the big deal? One beer. Some people say, Christian, it's okay to drink. I'll have one beer, one glass of wine. And I'll tell you what. I mean, you're, you're living uh, on the edge. Someone's going to see you. Someone's going to stumble. You're going to stumble. You shouldn't be playing with sin. You shouldn't. Or whatever it is. I don't know. You know, I can watch this. It's not a big deal. Are you sure? Are you sure? If you're not sure, then don't. Because God will discipline His children. And we see this right here. And we're going to see as we go through here, this is the hardest part. If it was just me, that's okay, kind of. It's okay, kind of. But it's not just me. It's my kids. And my grandkids. 
if I get blessed with grandkids one day? Who knows? I hope so. But if I live in sin, they're going to suffer. If I live in sin, others will suffer. That's why we can't. We've got to just flee that. And, and seriously, when you guys know what sin is, what it means, right? It means missing the mark. You guys know that literally in, in the Greek, hamartiology means missing the mark. And so what does that mean? That means that I'm always shooting for the bullseye. Always. Now I'm going to miss, I'm going to sin, but I am always trying not to sin. Always in my thoughts, I bring every thought into captivity. With my lips, I hate gossip. Don't gossip. God hears. You know, in the decisions that you make, the way you spend your dollars, everything has to be surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See, and the nation of Israel, they just kept playing with sin and, and, and God eventually had to bring, them, bring down that, that discipline in a very, 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 very rough way. And that's the thing that we want to try to avoid. We want to bring God glory. You know, God will discipline us if we sin. But what will God do if we, if we live a life of general obedience? He will bless you. He will bless your life. And that's why we got to have that in our heart. You know, this whole thing right here, I thought it was kind of interesting. This is a quick side note. Uh, there's an archaeological discovery. Have you guys ever heard of the Tel Dan Stella? It's an archaeological discovery in northern Israel. They found it in 1993. I think we have a picture right here. Um, there's a, a series of broken uh, stones, also called steles, that were discovered in 93 in northern Israel. And it consists of fragments making up parts of uh, the inscriptions of Aramaic, led, left by this guy Haziel and uh, some of the individuals of that time. One of the interesting things about this is it mentions uh, the the victories over the king of Israel and his ally, the king of the house of David. So that would be Israel and Judah. And we're going to see that as we go through our chapter today. And so uh, pretty interesting. But right here, uh, when you read it, a lot of at first people were wondering, I'm not sure about this, but eventually now it's, it's, it's known, widely regarded as genuine and referring, referring to the Davidic dynasty. And so this puts everything that we're reading today at about 845 B.C. And his guy Haziel did indeed reign for 40 years. Now something else that's kind of interesting. Notice what we read right here. Um, look at verse 11. Elisha, Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed. How would you feel if someone was just staring at you? Like... You feel embarrassed, huh? Kind of. It says, and then it says, the man of God did what? He wept. When was the last time you wept? You know, you wept over someone's sin. You're, you wept over maybe someone's situation or the way that God is maybe disciplining someone. You know, if you go over to Luke 19, let's jump over there real quick. We see that Elisha is actually in some pretty good company. Now, remember I told you guys this? Elijah, Elijah is a picture of who? Well, there's probably different things, but a lot of people will tell you John the Baptist. The Bible explicitly says John the Baptist, right? And Elisha is kind of a picture of Jesus, because John came before Jesus, Elijah comes before Elisha, and look what you read in verse 41 of Luke 19, it says, now he, as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city, and he, and he wept over it. Now I've never been to Israel, but they say that there's a certain place where you can go, and you can see the whole city. And when Jesus was there, can you imagine, can you just picture him, Jesus God, 
just weeping, weeping. Why is he weeping? It says right here, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. It was like, it started off with him saying, man, if only you would have known the potential and the plans and the dreams that I had for you, this was your day. This was the day that I was going to be the, your king. Your king came to you to bless, to bless you. If only you had known this. But, but they didn't. He says, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, and we know the Romans came in, 70 AD, General Titus, 1.2 million Jews died. Jesus saw the whole thing, and he wept. He just wept. Elisha saw the whole thing, and he just wept. C.H. Spurgeon said, Winners of souls must first be weepers for souls. You know, the other day we were watching, it's funny, we went to go see the Lego movie, and I cried. And my kids look, I always look at me, my, my, my son's, oh, hey, did he cry? We saw this other movie uh, last night, Grace Unplugged. It's a really good movie. Maybe we're going to show it here as a church. It's a Christian movie. I like it. I cried. My son comes up to me, Dad, why are you crying? I said, Jesus cried? What's wrong with that? <laughs> I know some of us here, you know, it's harder. It's harder to cry sometimes. I know some guys, before they were Christians, they never cried. I don't know, somebody maybe taught them it's not good to cry. Or I don't know. I, there's just a lot of different emotional dynamics in that. But I want you to know it's okay to cry. As a matter of fact, sometimes I think it's, it's good to cry. When you look and you see that person right there and they're hurting and they're down and they're just doing all bad. They're doing all bad. And you know, part of you says, ah, you know, God get them, judge them, they deserve it. I can't believe they would do what they did. But then the Lord shows you His perspective. And when God sees the whole thing, He just... He just weeps over them. And that's what we find in the scriptures. You know, that God weeps. You know, Ezekiel 33.11, listen to what it says. It says, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Let it be known that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not like that. It breaks his heart. Right? And we got to know that's the way the scriptures present God. It would be good for us to weep. God weeps. Elisha weeps. All of us who have that heart and love of God should weep. You guys remember Jeremiah? He was known as the weeping prophet. I like what it says in Jeremiah 9 verse 1, the New Living Translation says, Oh, that my eyes were a fountain of tears, I would weep forever. I would sob day and night for all my people who have been slaughtered. You know, Paul had the same heart as well, broken heart. In Romans 9, 2 and 3 it says, That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. He was like Moses. Moses said, you know, God, I want them to get saved so bad, blot my name out of the book of life. I mean, Moses and Paul had that heart. Could you say that? Could you say that, Lord? I want them to get saved so bad, you know, that I'd be willing to go to hell if they get saved. Now, of course, we know that that's not the way God operates. But you have to admire that type of heart. And that's the heart that God had. In one sense, Jesus experienced hell. 
so that we can experience heaven. See, it's all part of weeping. It's all part of having that type of love for the Christian who might be suffering that discipline or for the non-believer who doesn't know the Lord. And I think so many times we're just living our life and we're doing our own thing and we don't even care because we've got our own little life, our own neat little life that we're living. And God just says, there's more to it, you know. And I notice that when we have our problems, you know, we give them to the Lord, but we don't focus on them. We start serving other people. And the next thing you know, it's so cool what the Lord does. Um, he uses our life to help others, and He takes care of our own struggles, you know. And so this whole thing happens. Um, let me read in verse 16, continue on in this chapter. Now, in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Joram went to Zair and all his chariots with him. Then he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots, and the troops fled to their tents. Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, and Libna revolted at that time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. And so, you know, it's so cool. Just I love just going through the kings. Um, we rediscover why it's called the kings here, Second Kings. Um, where it covers the different kings in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. If you guys remember, 1 Samuel deals with who? Deals with Samuel and then King Saul. 2 Samuel deals with David, right? 1 Kings, you have the first 11 chapters, 12 chapters of Solomon. And then you have the divided kingdom, right? Then you get into 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And when we get into First and Second Chronicles, you're going to notice it's primarily just the kings of Judah, also dealing with David as well. But it's so cool looking at this and learning from all these guys. We have different accounts of the kings and the kingdoms, but intricately woven into the book are the words and works of God through the two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. But now we're back to studying the kings. And, you know, when we see this king right here, it's sad to say that in the southern kingdom, which is this is the southern kingdom, there were bad kings. We read of one here in Second Kings. Look again in chapter 8, verse 16. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel. Now, Jehoshaphat. Now, was Jehoshaphat a good king? You guys know? He was a good king. Having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years. And notice it says in verse 18, He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And here's, here's, here's his epitaph. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So even though Jehoshaphat was a good king, he made some pretty big blunders that messed up his son and his grandson. And that's why we have to be, we have to be so careful, you know? When you read this right here, it's interesting how God shows us things that can happen. You know, once again, we see a large part of the reason that this king, that this man was an ungodly man, was due to his ungodly marriage. You know, Josephus, who's a historian, he tells us that Jehoram murdered his brothers. We're going to see that later in 2 Chronicles 21. 
So he murders all his brothers, but Josephus tells us it was because his wife told him to. She was, she was bad. He should have never married her. But what had happened was Jehoshaphat made good friends with the king of Israel. And they're going to war together. And so they start mingling like that with the ungodly. And even though Jehoshaphat himself was a good king, he messed up, he ruined his son and his grandson because he shouldn't have been mingling with the wicked world of his day. And that's why we got to be so careful, you guys. And I've told you many times, and I know we've gone over this many times, we can't be unequally yoked with non-believers. You know, your best friend should be a Christian. If you're in business with someone, they should be Christians. Any partner, especially the romantic type, man, that, you know, can lead to marriage, make sure that they're Christians. You don't want to be wondering, scratching your head, while well, they say they're a Christian and they got the t-shirt, you know, like Kenny was talking about that on Sunday, you know, whatever, the fish emblem or whatever. No, I mean, do you see that they love God? And let me tell you something, don't get involved in missionary dating. Please, I beg of you. You're like, well, I like her, she's fine, whatever, right? And so you invite her to church, and so she's going to church, or he's going to church, or whatever. You know, so then you're thinking, well, maybe. No way, you can't do that. Man, I really encourage you to stay away from that. Because, man, what will happen, Nehemiah 13, 26, it said that they turned the heart of Solomon away from God. Flee those things. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. And so I want to encourage you guys, be so careful. This is the problem. Jeroboam did evil in the sight of the Lord. But here's something interesting. Look at verse 19. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah, for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamb to him and his sons forever. So here we are today. If you're living in compromise and sin, the next generation is going to feel it. And probably the generation after them, who knows how long it will go. But it's so cool, so cool to know this, that if you're living for the Lord, the next generation might feel that too, in a good way. And the generation after that, he didn't destroy them because of his covenant he made with David. And why doesn't the Lord, why does he not destroy us? Because our covenant with who? Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you have not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then you are not under the banner of his covenant. You need Jesus. See, God doesn't destroy me. Is it because I'm a great guy? Absolutely not. It's because I have a great God. It's so cool. Now, I'm not going to go out and sin and take advantage of that. No way. But I am going to accept that grace. And I know it's because of Him. It's, it's not, not because of me. This guy, he experienced all these problems. Edom revolted. Uh, Libna revolted, which is actually a city in Judah. All the problems. Why? Because... They just wouldn't live right. They wouldn't live for the Lord. And so we close in verse 25. It says, And in the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. And Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned one year, not, not a very long reign, huh, in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. Oh, man, she's really bad. The granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. And then King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria, and Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. And so you can picture him there. He's on his way to the hospital. He puts the elevator. He goes up to the third floor. 
and he's going to see him, and we're going to see part two, Lord willing, uh, next week. But it's crazy, you know, looking at all these things, you know, the, like I was telling my son, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so this dad messed up, and then his son messed up, right? And he does evil in the sight of the Lord. He allies himself with the wicked king of the northern kingdom, and he joins him. And when that king is wounded, Azai goes to see him. And we're going to see next time that he's going to die because of that. You know, and let me just share something with you. Some people might say, but they're the northern kingdom, and we're the southern kingdom, and we're all one, right? Aren't we supposed to be allied? Some people are like that. Not always. We got to know when to unite and when to divide. Some people want to please everybody, make everybody, everybody like me, and they're not willing to make a stand for what's right. Oh, but they're the northern kingdom. We're the southern kingdom. Yeah, but that's not right. That's not right in God's sight. So these guys are like, well, we're going to be friends. What ends up happening? They suffer and then die. It's hard sometimes, but you really got to make sure that the Lord is, is leading you. Let me give you eight things real quick. Um, if you're writing things down that I think we can take away from the study, and then after that I'll give you ten things. No, I'm just joking. Because people are like, wait a minute, the study's over. This is at Calvary Chapel. <laughs> Go a little longer tonight, okay? Number one, the Lord is a benevolent provider. I pray you guys would know that. He will always provide for you. He will always provide for you. Beans and rice, Jesus Christ. Maybe get some salsa in there, you'll be good. The Lord will provide for you. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So number one, He will provide. Number two, there are no coincidences with God. No coincidences. And so you see someone over here, over there, whatever, you never know. God might be doing something big. I can't tell you how many times in my life where just because I went to this little function or whatever, it changed my life. So you always had to be open. Number three, the Lord is a compassionate Father. He weeps over sinners. He weeps over the, 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 the consequences of sin. Number four, the Lord is a holy God, and He will judge the world and discipline His children. Make no mistake about it, He's holy. Number five, be, be aware or beware that we all have sin within. All of us here have great potential for holiness and wickedness. Right? Number six, do not be unequally yoked. Don't be unequally yoked with you know, best friends, business partners, boyfriend, girlfriend. Be real careful. Number seven, our children and grandchildren will be affected, even infected, by our sins. So don't mingle with the world. And then number eight, God shows us amazing grace if we've entered into the new covenant with our Lord Jesus Christ. Cool thing is, at the end of the day, because I trust in Jesus, God's not going to destroy me. And I am just so, so grateful for that. I heard about a sign in a plumber's van on the side. It said, there's no place too deep, too dark, or too dirty for us to handle. And that was the plumber saying that. And then the individual said, well, that's a good one for God, huh, isn't it? You know, as we paid nothing for God's eternal love and nothing for the son of his love and nothing for his spirit, and our grace and faith, and nothing for our eternal rest, what an astonishing thought it will be to think of the immeasurable difference between our deserving and our receiving. You know, one day when people are in hell, they might see signs that say, deserved. But one day when we're in heaven, with all those blessings lavished upon us, we're going to see this grace and we're going to say, wow, Undeserved, but thank you, Lord. Why? Because the Bible says this, Second Corinthians five twenty one. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. 
right? Jesus did that work on the cross. And as a result of that, I know, I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm free. I want to get that message out there. Why? Because they didn't destroy these guys because of David. And we won't be destroyed because of Jesus. Remember what I told you before? At the end of the day, it's not really a sin issue. It's a son issue. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he your all? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he your everything? I pray, I pray that he is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for not destroying us because of Jesus. Lord, as your people here tonight, I pray that we would have a, a new uh, just inspiration of gratitude, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that all these things that we get to study tonight, that you would um, just really, by your Holy Spirit, show us how to live these things out loud. And Father, I pray if there is anyone here today who really, in all reality, maybe they've been coming to church, but they're not really born again. They haven't like completely surrendered their life to you. I pray today, Lord, let it be that day that they give their heart to you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.